My mother, Grace City, my mother would take any opportunity, she's passed now for a, a, a decade or so, but my mother would take any opportunity to introduce me uh, as her baby. She would say to anyone she was meeting, this is my baby. And uh, she's the only one allowed to do that, so don't get any ideas. I was the fourth of four, and I was imprinted on her. Uh, as her baby. Do you know what that imprint feels like, right? Your children get imprinted on you, and I was imprinted as the baby. And this morning, if you're a mom or an educator or a youth ministry leader, an after-school director, anyone who gives their lives, their time, and their resources on behalf of children, you have been imprinted along the way. My wife uh, is a uh, 100-year-long kindergarten teacher. seems like that, anyway, so... Uh, just retired last year, but she can name children, uh, and she'll, we'll meet them because we live in that area, and, and she'll meet them along the way and say, that one was so special to my heart. It happened just this weekend uh, as we met now a fifth grader, and when we had a retirement party, there were kids there from university and beyond who came back to tell her what she had meant, and she's crying now, so there you go. Anyone who gives their lives for children gets imprinted by children, so you can understand the feeling that Judy read the scripture this morning. You can understand the feeling that Paul brings when he says of the first Corinthians in Corinth who have met the Lord through his ministry, he says this, you yourselves are written on our hearts. You are imprinted on our hearts. Grace City, this morning, what is written on your heart? What, who is written on your heart? Who comes to mind? Just take a minute. Who comes to mind? And just not, maybe not in your family or your children, but outside from your experience in life, who comes to mind, Jim, for Someone who's been imprinted on you. Just take a minute. Who's been imprinted on your heart, Lindsay, through all these years of teaching up at Hopkins? Who's been imprinted? Who's been imprinted, Marina, on your heart since two, for just for the last two months? And I'm sure you're coming up with names. I'd like to hear all those stories. You could say to them, you are written on my heart. Well, here we see Paul's heart fully exposed. These new converts to Christ in Corinth were so dear to Paul that it was as if Christ himself had written each one of them like a letter onto Paul's heart. We're in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. I encourage you to keep it open on your phones, in your Bibles, at home. Keep it open as we go through it today, the first six verses. And I honestly, I feel like this when I look at all of you and think of you at home. Uh, The Grace City family, Jeremy, is imprinted on my heart uh, I've known so many of you since you were in your 20s, and now you're in your 80s, 40s, and, and, uh, and you've had children, and, and you're, all, of, all of this is imprinted on my heart just the way Paul is writing uh, about this. And today I want to bring these six verses to our series, God's Handwriting, to the table under the title, Writing on Human Hearts, Writing on Human Hearts, and it's part two. We were in Jeremiah with the same title last week, and, and we'll, we'll go back to that. Handwriting is becoming a lost art, right? They, they don't really, t- are they teaching handwriting in elementary school anymore? Nope, shaking your head. Um, it used to be a thing. I remember the Peterson system, round, round, ready, right? Anybody do that? You learn to make circles and no, nobody's with me on that. Must have been just when I was in elementary school. But it's becoming a lost art. So let's, let's let Paul's text on God's handwriting teach us the basics as we first look at the construct of God's handwriting today, the construct of God's handwriting. I've often wondered, Kathy, how the Apostle Paul would rate in today's church. 
whether he would be considered successful enough and credentialed enough to guest preach, for instance, in today's churches. Would we let him in? I mean, a man who spent most of his ministry in jail, who never made enough money to buy his own home, who never built a church, never preached on TV like I am today, kind of weirdly, who had frequent, frequently had to get a secular job to support himself, John, who, who had admitted he was a poor speaker and, and really not had, an, well, I put it this way, he had an unimpressive appearance, would he make the cut for us today? So perhaps it's no wonder, as chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians begins, that they had difficulty believing in Corinth that he was a real apostle. That this is the local vibe in Corinth that, that Paul is navigating. And that perhaps explains why chapter 3 begins with these words. Paul writes, do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? Watch this. You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. Everyone watches you for, for the letter. You show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but the Spirit of the living God. Now, in retrospect, Grace City, it's amazing, isn't it, that it's even unbelievable that these people would ever think that the Apostle Paul needed a, a letter of recommendation. After all, after all, he had led these people to Christ. He had established the new church. And yet now, here they communicate to Paul that the next time he comes to Corinth, it would be really a good thing if he would bring a letter from from Peter or John or James, some references from one of the real apostles. Can you, can you bring one of those, Paul? And Paul asks, do you really mean that? Don't you get it? Dear ones, if you want letters from me, look in the mirror. You are the letter. You're the construct. You are the, the letter of our recommendation written by Christ himself. As for me, I am nothing but the postman. I just delivered the letters. He didn't use paper. He didn't deliver it on stones as he did with Moses on Mount Sinai. And we're going to talk about that God's handwriting there next week. He wrote it on your hearts. And the ink he used was the Holy Spirit. Wow. And now he's, Paul says, you're written on my heart. And the Greek tense of the, per, of, uh, the perfect tense of the word written here, Lindsay, you probably know this, has this sense of permanent engraving. It's as though God's taken a, a cardiac chisel and, and etched it onto Paul's heart and onto their hearts. Paul knew so many of these people in such a personal way that he regarded himself as their father. But at the same time, Paul wants Corinthians to understand, watch this, that the changes that had occurred in their lives and the freedom they were experiencing all happened because Christ had changed them. Because it's Jesus who heals a hurting heart. It's Jesus who touches our grief. It's the Lord who forgives, changes, and restores. And Paul wants the young Corinthian church to understand that it's Christ alone. Somebody say Christ alone. Christ alone who has written these things on their hearts, like a letter of reference. So church, if such a, such a letter can always be found on the hearts of those changed by Christ, then it's worth some self-examination this morning to ask this. How many of us look like a good recommendation for Jesus Christ? Take a look at yourself. That's worth it. How many of us look like a good recommendation of what Jesus has accomplished in our lives? Sometimes I tell folks when I meet them, if you're really excited about Jesus, then you need to inform your face because you look pretty dour. And some people quote me on that now. And let's take our writing. Since we're talking about God's handwriting, let's take our writing. There's a lot of you in here whose careers 
like mine really, depend on writing. And much of what we say to others these days arrives via writing. Political statements, protest signs, social media updates, and all of that's okay in and of itself, but it's worth doing a handwriting analysis on our own writing. What is the tenor of our content? Can one see love in the margins of, can, can one see love in the margins of truth? Can one see mercy on the edges of justice? Can, is there humility behind the stroke of our pen or the typing of our fingers? Is there humility there? Because Paul says here, the watching world can see that Christ has done something to you. What are they seeing in us? Great City, the most effective witness the church has in the world is you. It's you. So the family you come from, the roommate you live with, the people you work with, the neighbors you talk to, all ought to see such visible evidence of God at work in these people that they will say, what is this about you? What is going on with you? I remember when I first came to Christ at 14 years old, it wasn't because of great gospel preaching. It wasn't because of great music. I loved all that. But the thing was, I would watch these young college-age, young life leaders who were leading the young life club I was in in high school, and I was, I was so impressed with the way they lived their lives, with the way they gave themselves away, the way they lived in community with one another, and, and several events that just showed me. And I said, I want to be like that. What is going on with these people? How can I get in? Is it a club? Do I join? And that's when the gospel really imprinted on me. And this construct church of God's handwriting moves Paul then to ask and answer the obvious question, how can we possibly pull this off? So let's look at the confidence, the confidence we need in verses 4 and 5. We've looked at the construct. How do we get the confidence? Where does it come from? Paul writes this, such con verse 4, such confidence in this letter written on you, we have who? Through who? Through Christ before God. Watch this. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. So Paul is talking about confidence, and everybody in the world wants to grow in confidence. Raise your hand if you want to grow in confidence. You, every hand ought to grow up. Some of you are way too confident, and you can keep your hands down. And we're inundated in our world with, with self-help content, aren't we, Marissa? We can go out and find all kinds of books on, on how to become a self-sufficient, self-confident, self-capable, well-adjusted person who can handle life's challenges. And almost all of it derives from the same sort of vibe, same foundation. Confidence, we are told, has to come from yourself. You have to somehow find in yourself the power to achieve and be a success. We even sing about it. One of the greatest songs I know about is, and I love Whitney Houston, her whole genre, um, work of, of art, but one of her greatest hits is The Greatest Love of All, which says the greatest love of all is, is to love me. It's all about me. It's, well, enough about me. What do you think of me? It just goes on and on. As a matter of fact, the, the lyrics at some point, Paula, say, I've learned to depend on me. And it's the opposite. So let, we all need confidence. Sing the song, enjoy the song. But Grace City, the lingering question in the midst of the me is where does trustworthy, sustainable, unassailable confidence for living actually come from? And Scripture is a contrarian to our messaging and to the greatest love of all that Whitney Houston is. It's contrarian. Read through all the writings. John, support me on this. Read through all the writings of Paul and of Luke and of Peter and James and John and all the others, and they consistently deflect credit 
and deny that their ability or their influence ever is what produces godly fruit. Here's Paul, for instance, in Galatians 2.20, and we sang it in our, our first song this morning. He says, I no longer even live, but Christ lives in me. It's not about me. It's about him. And this is entirely different from how we conceive things and how we live our lives. The Christian world today would say that Paul was admirable because he was doing his dedicated best to give of himself, to mobilize all the resources and considerable abilities that he brought to the table to serve God with all his heart. We give such a claim to people all the time. And that's, that's fine, but Paul would never say that. He would never own that. You don't see it in his writings at all. And listen, it's not even about modesty, is it? He's not being modesty. He actually means what he says. He's insisting to the young Corinthian Christians, I don't make any kind of contribution that has anything to do with, you, with your life in Christ. Everything good comes from God, he tells them. And the changes that occur in people's lives, your lives, is because, is not, because of nothing that I bring. It has nothing to do with me. We interpret Paul that he's trying to do godly things on God's behalf. And then we say, yay, Paul, keep trying. But here, Scripture actually holds the opposite formula. God is doing his thing through Paul. It's not about Paul trying harder. It's about God doing it because Paul is a, is a vessel that's willing to surrender. What a difference this makes in our lives, church. It makes all the difference. And it's rather amazing because... For 20 centuries, both secular scholars and Christ followers have recognized that the Apostle Paul was unusually competent. He was, he was quite competent. Anyone who reads Paul in the original language admits that he possessed among the keenest minds in all of history. Paul himself tells us in the letter to Philippians that if he wanted to rely on self-confidence, there were four remarkable things he could cite in his resume, and he gives us his resume. He was born into the right family, could be traced all the way back to Abraham. Secondly, he reminds us he had an unchallenged re record of orthodoxy. He says, I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm number one in the class. More than that, at an early age, he, he had advanced to an unprecedented position of, of prominence by being granted membership in the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of the Jews, because he'd been so enormously successful in what? In persecuting the new Christian church. And finally, his private life was just as clean as his public life. He was, before the law, blameless. And listen, the reason I give you this is the reason he gave it. There are thousands today who make very impressive records religiously in the eyes of churches around the world. But as Paul had to learn, none of that holds sway in the economy of God. Because it's not about us. Somebody say it's not about me. Say it's not about us. This is hard. I, I know this cuts deep. If you want to be, listen, if you want to be, if you want to really Turnover, if you want to really upset whole communities, if you want to really change lives, if you want to give people liberty and freedom in the midst of guilt and depression, if you want to do justice in the midst of domination, we're going to have to learn what Paul learned. We're going to have to learn it inside, written on our hearts. Church, everything worthwhile comes from God and God alone. God alone does God's work. It's not about us, Mary Lou. And if there's no sense of surrender to that, if there's no sense of, of, of embrace of that, if there's no authentic dependence on him for the purpose of divine change in this world, it is wasted effort. Corey Barnes taught us long ago, the only reason we raise our hands in worship is just to get, assume the posture of surrender. 
That's what that's about. Listen, I understand, like I said, that this can cut deep, Brendan, but, but hold on for a minute. Last Sunday, we saw Jeremiah foreshadow this idea about God's writing on our hearts, God becoming the, the living force in our lives. It was in his prophecy six centuries before Paul wrote the words we read today. Jeremiah called it the new covenant. Somebody say new covenant. And he said there's going to come a day when God will write his laws in people's hearts instead of imposing them from the outside. And here in 2 Corinthians now, Paul adds something very important to the idea, the foundation of the new covenant in verse 6. And here it is. It's about the connection. We've seen the construct. We've seen the confidence and where it comes from. And now we're about to see the connection that makes it all work. Watch this in verse 6. He has made us competent. As ministers of a new covenant, we have a job description now, ministers of new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So church, here we go. The old covenant, misapplied, by the way, conveys this. Here's a standard to achieve. Now go and do your very best. Try hard to fulfill it. That's the old covenant. Imposed from the outside, go get them, tiger. But the new covenant is exactly the opposite. The new covenant says, show up. Show up and present yourself in surrender to the God who will work through you and do what God demands. God himself will achieve using you and me as the instrument of what he wants to do. You'll never get credit for it. You can never say it was anything you did. Are you ready to go? Are you ready to show up? Are you ready like Isaiah to say, here I am. Send me. I surrender. Second Chronicles 20, John has a great, great example of this, and it's on your screen at home. Jehoshaphat is king, and uh, they are being surrounded by the Ammonites and the uh, Amorites and the Munites and the Termites, and all the ites are after them. I made up the termite part. And, and they're surrounded, and there's this vast army that's about to do them in, and Jehoshaphat and the people of Israel are like, what? And the prophet of Israel at the time comes to Jehoshaphat and says this. Listen, listen to this. This is what the Lord says to you while you're surrounded. Don't be afraid or discouraged because of the vast army that surrounds you. For the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not have to fight this battle. Verse 17 in 2 Chronicles 20. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Show up. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Grace City, this is why, this is why we show up around the city. This is why we show up and have dinner with our neighbors. This is why we have flavor. This is why we go to Managua and show up on behalf of Orphan Network and our partners down there. We don't go down there to, to fix stuff. We don't go down there to, 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 to do something that we have of our own agenda. We show up to be vessels for the Lord, to partners with our partner. We show up to do what God would have us do it, when Somebody asked me this week, why did you celebrate, why, why are we celebrating Afri um, Asian American Her and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Why do we celebrate all these things? Why? Because we show up for people who people haven't shown up for throughout history. We show up. We put our arms around folks. And we're going to keep doing it. We show up. We show up because they're written on our hearts. We show up for Marina. Marina shows up for us. She's, she's come. She's gone. You won't be forgotten. We sh you know, you showed up. We show up for people. The reason we go out and walk with We Are Us and our partners around the city into some of the toughest neighborhoods in the city uh, weekly, twice a week, and hopefully 
seven days a week coming, coming up as we get more and more men on, on board with this. When, when we walk into the toughest neighborhoods, people are packing, drug deals are going down, people look up, they see a hundred of us coming down the street, and here's how we come, Paula, you ready? How you doing? Big smiles on our faces. And it takes about 10 seconds for folks to realize, not only are they not threatening, they are here for us. We show up without an agenda, but to love, to give resources, to be God's vessels. Show up. People who are written on our hearts are not to be confined, by the way. We've got to take this from an individual thing to a community thing, Mark. People who are written on our hearts are not confined to individuals who have loved us well. That's actually fairly simple. If you stop there, you're getting off easy. It's easy to have someone written on your hearts who, who's just loved you, right, Richard? I mean, that's just like, cool, yeah, that, that person's awesome. Take it a step further. Such writing on our hearts has a community dimension to it, and Scripture is clear on this. It, it's seen most often on platforms of, of justice or the absence of justice. Because history, for instance, writes certain heroes onto our communal hearts, doesn't it? And it's for heaven's reasons that these heroes are written on our hearts. So Dr. King and President Lincoln and Harriet Tubman and William Wilberforce, I I could go on and on. I could make huge lists. Such authentic heroes comprise a rich treasure in the heart of any culture. And they they are necessary to have written on our communal hearts. Victims of injustice also occupy valuable space in our hearts, written on our hearts, because they've been victims of injustice. I'll never... I'll never forget my trip to um, the South, and, and I, I went, it was a solo journey, but it was just two years ago, then I went to Atlanta and Birmingham and Selma and, and Montgomery, but sitting in Montgomery in the National Peace and Justice Memorial, which you might know as the National Lynching Museum, and seeing the thousands and thousands and thousands of names of lynching victims throughout American history, and I don't know all the names, but I got to tell you, seeing the, this memorial, the, it was the finest, hardest thing with tears flowing for hours, sitting there, looking at the names with these memorials hung from a ceiling in an ever-descending way. These names, though I don't know them all, are written on my heart. Communally, they're written on our heart, and they ought to be. And with all this in mind, Grace City, Paul says that, that we are ministers of this new covenant where his law and his people are to be written on our hearts. And he adds that we only got this job because we had connections. How many of you got a job because you had a connection at some point in your life? That's a great way to get a job. We have a job as ministers of the new covenant of God because we have a connection. And it's the right connection. And more so, it's not only our connection to the Holy Spirit that got us this job, but it's the same connection is the only thing that can make us competent to do the job. Are you with me? But make no mistake, Grace City, this reality is crucial for Christ followers to understand and practice this reality of our connection to the Spirit. I'd even dare to say that aside from the deity of Christ and his death and life and death and resurrection, this is perhaps the one truth above everything else in Scripture that God wants his people to learn, and it's right here. But it's the one thing I find most consistently absent in the church across the world today. We still live. As Christ followers, we still live as if we're being graded. And we're, we're not shy about grading others, too. We still live as if 
if, if it's a performance deal to have a relationship with Christ, and, and we're not shy about putting that on others. We still live as if trying harder so that God will love us more is the best thing we can do. If I only, if I only try harder, God will love me more. Can we let that go this morning? It's time to let that go. Somebody say, let it go. That's not the dynamic of heaven. You can't be good enough for God. You just can't. And you can't be bad enough to have him stop loving you. That's really good news. This new covenant church written on our hearts, it's, it's really different than the way we conceive of things. Here, Jesus approaches us with his record of love, his willingness to die on our behalf, his freedom to forgive us. He longs to make us aware over and over that we are approved of him. We are already adopted into his family. We already have a seat at the table of God. We stand dear to his heart. We are cherished by him, connected to the spirit who gives life. And all of that is set in godly stone. And he tells us to show up stand firm and serve him within those same dimensions in whatever way our hearts delight in doing. Grace City, it's there that God finds his way into our hearts by writing his creative will and love on our hearts. He made them. He knows them. He knows what delights you. Go do it on his behalf. And then he says, I'm sending you like a love letter to the world. You are my love letter, Kathy, to everybody you come in contact with this week. You're my love letter. Go love the way I've loved you. Why would we do anything less? Well, as the worship team comes back up, let me say this about this writing. And if, I, if I'm honest, church, there are more than a few times when I sit down to write, to write a sermon, write a sermon, and I find myself staring at the screen, and Sue knows this because she lives with me. We've lived together for a long time. We're actually married. And she knows this, but sometimes I sit there and I stare at the screen, and there's this cynical voice in my head Mary Lou, that says, I don't have a single thing that's new or intelligent or wise to offer. And it happens more often than any worker, working preacher should admit, Alan. I mean, it really does. So let's just keep this between us. Don't tell anybody. And if you're online, you know, don't tell anybody this happens to me. But I mean, what is there to say about love or hope or faith that hasn't already been said? How do you write and deliver a, a new spin on God so that maybe this time people will leap to their feet and energized by the Spirit for the cause of justice and righteousness and reconciliation and gratitude for a loving Creator who has made us in His divine image and given us all this. So that goes through my mind. And, and then, church, there are, just as there are those blank moments, there are many, many more times where I am absolutely convinced, Richard, that the message of love and hope and faith that we proclaim in the church, or better yet, we proclaim as the church, are the most important words anybody can hear anywhere. The most important words there are in the universe. Things like, words like this, that in Christ we are new creations. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That there is no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female or this or that. But all of us are one in Christ Jesus. Oh, and, and this one too, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I mean, these words, there can't be more important words for us as we leave here this morning. And at such moments, I begin to see the truth of Paul's words in Ephesians 3 when he says that we are God's poetry. The word is poema. We often 
translate it handiwork, but the, the, the literal is we are God's poetry written by God. You are His poetry. I am His poet. You are written by Him. And church, though I may see things dimly from my own limited perspective or experience, though I know the truth only in part, I see this church. You are written on my heart. You are at home. You are written on my heart. And I want us to be written on each other's hearts because I see who we are becoming in Christ Jesus, who we are growing into. And that inspires me. That sustains me. And when we can find and form the vocabulary and muster the courage, writing and speaking about such things really has the power to change us and change the world, the neighborhood, the city around us. So church, with the Spirit leading us, let's stand up. Let's sing. Let's embrace the construct of God written on our hearts. Let's acknowledge the confidence we have that only can come from Him. And let's put our arms around our connection to the Holy Spirit as we sing about the Spirit now. So that when we leave here today on this great cold Mother's Day, we can go and be His love letter to the city of Baltimore. There's nothing better to do. Well, let's sing together.